Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Keep Calm and Carry On. I'm calling this episode, somewhat jokingly, Sue Less and Trust More, or a meditation on trust in finance. It grew out of a smaller blog post I did several months ago about trust in the capital markets, as well as an episode I just completed with an economist who wrote an intriguing book on the topic, Benjamin Ho. Uh, Please check out that interview. The issue has been bothering me for some time, so I've I've expanded the blog piece, uh, even in this format, about 5,000 words. It is way too short and incomplete to cover the issue. There should be another book somewhere in here. Many of you will disagree with the assertions made herein, and I hope that you'll do me the courtesy of communicating my mistakes to me directly. Prove to me why, in the endeavor of investing, we should never trust anyone, including ourselves, to ever to make decisions. I take exception to that notion and look forward to the debate. Before I start, however, a word on definition. Trust is one of those foundational words and concepts that is hard to define. We know it when we feel it or exercise it, but struggle to define it in a non-referential or non-circular terms. There's a whole literature out there on what it means to trust someone. Feel free to consult it. In the context of this podcast, it will be summarily defined as belief in, reliability of, the tautological trustworthiness of someone, etc. It's a belief that someone will do the best that they can for you to the best of their abilities and with the information that they have on hand. The word judgment is similarly important and subjective. It's decision-making, skill, wisdom, etc. In the context of the argument that I'm about to make here, They can be summarized as those activities that are distinctly human and cannot be reduced to a computer formula or data analysis. As you will see, that is a tautology, guilty as charged. At first glance, my stance in favor of trust in human judgment and finance would appear to be a strange one. Uh, On one hand, trust is everywhere in economics. Were it not, we'd all still be living in caves, interacting only with our direct families or relatives, uh, the latter assumed to be trustworthy. And and the broader study of economics has necessarily addressed trust and carved out room for it with lesser or greater success and often through the platform of game theory. I think that's telling. In game theory, there's a lot of calculating the odds, perhaps person to person, uh, but still calculating the odds and divining other people's intentions, but still trying to create rules and probabilities by which to live our lives. In any case, the game theorists, while the game theorists do see an explicit role for trust in investment, their narrative uh, does not appear to have made its way out of the academy or to the SEC. So on one hand, trust is everywhere in modern life, even uh, in the dreary science of economics and its subfield of finance. On the other hand, at a more practical level, modern finance and investing would appear to be utterly trust-free, an utterly trust-free zone. Stockbrokers and investment bankers rarely top the list of most trusted professions. Any trust in Enron or WorldCom or Pets.com or Washington Mutual was clearly misplaced. We are only one year away from the GameStop short squeeze and the attendant suspicions that the system is rigged against individuals. As I tape this, there are plenty of reasons not to trust certain individuals and financial institutions behind the SPACs, EV stocks, and a wide variety of investment options. There is little trust in the enforcement authorities, SEC, though the information asymmetry there makes the accusation patently unfair. Successful regulation or action by the SEC that forestalls fraud or collapse never gets attention, whereas the bad news always makes headlines. And growing numbers of people have zero trust uh, in the headline financial authorities, the Federal Reserve Board, or the fiat currency that we all use on a daily basis. That distrust of central authority has spawned an entirely new ecosystem of currency, which advertises itself partially 
on the basis of not having to trust anyone. Moreover, to judge by academic finance, that is by the dominant rules and formulas within finance and investment, trust has almost no role whatsoever. Academics uh, consider activities in finance and in particular investment to be exercises in, quote, decision-making under conditions of uncertainty. Modern finance tries to quantify that decision-making process down to the third decimal point within a system of rational actors maximizing uh, utility in a context of economic equilibrium. That is where everything adds up. The output is a barrage of expected returns based on past returns, correlations, expected variances, and other quantified factors. There is little to no role in that system for any notion of trust or confidence or judgment that cannot be quantified, formulated, and programmed into a utility function, a model of how humans are supposed to make choices. One might counter-argue that trust-based decision-making is what's left over after the computers or formulas have made their recommendation. But the goal of every new iteration of quantitative finance is to reduce that remaining uncertainty with an even better formula or data analysis. So, at the end of the day, in classical finance, there is no need for any human-to-human trust as the basis for decision-making. In recent decades, behavioral finance came along to prove that most decision-making is actually quite poor. The biases that we all exhibit only accentuate the apparent appeal of the non-trust quantitative model. Add a dash more technology and the human role in investing can disappear entirely. Robo-advisors with comforting-sounding names such as Betterment use computer algorithms to spit out prospective asset allocation models and specific portfolios for retail investors. It's cheap and human-free, and the epitome of the financial community's disdain for old-fashioned judgment and the necessity of trusting another human being. More broadly, the passive investing tsunami that has swept across the investment landscape the past several decades can also be seen partially as another manifestation of the dehumanization of decision-making. There are many other factors involved in the rise of index funds. Let's save that topic for another day. But passive investing represents an additional instance where traditional judgment and person-to-person trust are removed from the investment equation. This banishment of individual judgment, at least in the academy, is of particular interest uh, to me. I ended a a prior book with uh, Chicago economist Merton Miller's famous 1986 dismissal of the human being from modern finance. I quote it at the beginning of my current project on the stock market. Miller noted that individuals not aware of the science, the science of finance, may view their stocks as, quote, more than just the abstract bundles of returns of our economic models. Behind each holding may be a story of a family business, family quarrels, legacies received, divorce settlements, and a host of other considerations almost totally irrelevant to our theories of portfolio selection. That we abstract from all these stories in building our models is not because the stories are uninteresting, but because they may be too interesting and thereby distract us from the pervasive market forces that should be our principal concern, end quote. Miller's view of the world is Borg-like with no humans or humanity in it. This is the paradox I'm addressing today, the necessity of trust in a complex society, but it's apparent banishment from the endeavor of investing, at least as it's taught by the academics. I'm willing to take a heretical stand in favor of trust in finance. I do so because I believe that the very human inclination and desire to trust someone is inseparable from participating in modern society. Every day we make judgments, including economic and financial ones, based substantially, if not exclusively, on trust, as opposed to a calculation of odds, risks, rewards, costs, and benefits. It's central to almost every decision we make, where we go to school, where to send our children to school, whom to wed, whom to work for, choosing doctors, contractors, and just about everyone with whom we associate. We can never know for certain whether we are making the right decision pre-factum, and for most decisions, we can never tell whether we made the best choice. Life is not a double-blind, randomized study.
Something is clearly missing in the academic models of decision-making, and it is trust and judgment. We don't sign a contract with a vendor because we know for certain that the other party will do exactly what we expect or that there is a 97.23% chance that they will with a standard deviation of 6.7% or some such figure. That is after the fact. We sign the contract or push the buy button as an act of trust. The contract terms and the phalanx of lawyers are there to enforce the outcome, but not to generate it in the first place. Would you knowingly engage someone you do not trust with only the guarantee of an airtight contract and lawyers on retainer? Unless you had no other choice, probably not. Our trust may be misplaced, and it often is, but it is still a major factor in the decision-making process. The challenge of identifying and managing trust relationships is particularly important to modern investment because the process is so dependent on unknown, unrelated actors. In the pre-modern period, people did business with relatives and with a small number of non-relatives that they trusted. The limited ability to conduct business beyond that circle constrained growth. The wider the trust circle, whether based on simple trust or trust ultimately augmented by contracts and early mechanisms of enforcement, the more that business model could expand. This is a cartoonish summary of Francis Fukuyama's overlooked and underappreciated 1995 book, Trust, the Social Virtues, and the Creation of Prosperity. In it, Fukuyama highlights the necessity of cultural trust to economic success. He proposes a correlation between high-trust societies with their better outcomes and low-trust societies with their lesser outcomes. Right or wrong in his analysis, Fukuyama asks a question that more than a quarter century later still deserves much greater attention. If Merton Miller's dismissal of humans from finance is well-known, Fukuyama's inclusion should be as uh, equally well-known. It reads, quote, We can think of neoclassical economics as being, say, 80% correct. It has uncovered important truths about the nature of money and markets because its fundamental model of rational, self-interested human behavior is correct about 80% of the time. But there is a missing 20% of human behavior about which neoclassical economics can give only a poor account. As Adam Smith well understood, economic life is deeply embedded in social life, and it cannot be understood apart from the customs, morals, habits of the society in which it occurs. In short, it cannot be divorced from culture. Consequently, we have been ill-served by contemporary economic debates that fail to take into account these cultural factors, end quote. Following Fukuyama's argument, consider the role of trust throughout the value chain of modern commerce. While in the earlier pre-modern period, the value chain for growing crops or making horseshoes or building a farmhouse did not involve too many links. Uh, you either made the product or knew the person who made the product. Few, if any, goods or services were provided five or six levels down the value chain by people who were entirely unknown to you or to anyone whom you knew. In contrast, in modern stock market investing, the value chain has become very long. You're an investor. You invest your money with a financial advisor. He or she chooses to work at a particular firm or use a particular technology platform. That back office makes available certain products or portfolios for the financial investor, financial advisor to invest in. The asset manager behind those products allocates the capital, say stocks, to certain companies and votes every year on the board of directors of said companies and on key issues that come up at the annual general meeting. That board of directors in, choo uh, in turn chooses a chief executive. The chief executive chooses staff and so forth to run the company. And then there are often invisible parts of the investing value chain, such as custodians, they're very important by the way, clearing houses, transfer agents, etc. 
That's how you end up owning shares of the Coca-Cola company in your brokerage account. It can be a simpler process, but not much simpler. There are many intermediaries involved in modern investment. The likelihood of an individual investor knowing or even fully understanding the function of the next person or institution down the line is pretty low. There are contracts and legal frameworks and so forth that act as guideposts, but in a complex extended value chain, there is no way that the lawyers, the laws, and the guidelines will or can guarantee complete and perfect satisfaction each and every time and at each and every link in the chain. There's simply too much human and machine and institutional activity and judgment involved. And it is worth noting as well that the complex investing that we all pursue is entirely dependent on the rule of law. Without that, none of this works. And the rule of law uh, requires uh, an entirely different web of trust relationships. As the major modern economist Kenneth Arrow noted in 1969, quote, it is useful for individuals to have some trust in each other's word. In the absence of trust, it would become very costly to arrange for alternative sanctions and guarantees, and many opportunities for mutually beneficial cooperation would have to be foregone. In short, no trust, no KO stock. It's that simple. But wait, there's more. It gets even more interesting in the specific case of investing because the issue of trust extends through time. The primary reason we might choose to invest in the Coca-Cola company is due to an expectation of how the company will operate 5 or 10 or 20 years in the future, not just today. Finance is quite explicit about that. The present value of a stock or any investment is the net present value of its future cash flows, period. It's all about the future and the discount rate. To meet that challenge, academic finance tries to make estimates about the future as precise as their analysis of past data. That is the subfield of rational uh, expectations economics. It's mostly used in regard to macroeconomic forecasts, not whether KO will trade at $70 a share next year or not, but the exercise is similar. It attempts to turn future uncertainty into quantifiable risk. So in an ideal scenario, any form of unquantifiable judgment is removed from the investment equation. That's a bridge very far, very far indeed. What is the difference between judgment, a forecast, and even a guess, and trust? There are differences, of course, but at the end of the day, we really can't be certain how the new formulation of Coke Zero will fare months and years out. We can forecast, we can guess, we can hedge, but ultimately, we don't know. Somehow, however, we come to a judgment and act upon it. That is true decision-making under conditions of uncertainty. It's what humans do all the time, and it is what orthodox finance struggles to accept. And if you think that you can sidestep human judgment with some sort of investing algorithm, please, you are deluding yourself. All those algos are written by people, so you're just deferring the trust judgment from someone you know or have specifically commissioned for the purpose to someone remote from you. And even in algorithmic or index investing, all of the other institutional background trust relationships remain in place. Now, it is fair to point out that in so-called thick markets, where there are lots of participants, everyone paying attention, lots of institutions, perhaps less explicit trust is actually needed. That market may be, to borrow a term from elsewhere in finance, it may be somewhat trust efficient, meaning you don't really need to explicitly trust anyone. It is in all of the actors' best interest to do what they're supposed to do to the best of their ability. Perhaps. But as a market participant for the past 20 years, and as a historian of the financial markets, I really don't see either price efficiency, the traditional use of that term, or a market so thick that it dispenses with trust relationships. But it is possible. Where there can be no doubt about the explicit role of trust is in thin markets, where the data is limited and where there are only a handful of participants and institutions involved. 
angel investing, startup ventures, venture capital, micro caps, even small cap stocks. These are all examples where trust is predominant and the math is far from determinative. In fact, the forecasts are usually just made up. There, investors have no choice but to trust if they wish to proceed at all. Now, I exaggerate somewhat when I suggest that uh, that the investing exercise, particularly through the lens of the academy, pretends that trust plays no, uh, little role, even if it is clearly there under the surface and in the background. For instance, we do have trustees. They are individuals chosen precisely because they are trusted to act in the best interests of others in regard to estates, in regard to minors, in regard to investing capital and distributing it over time. Whatever guidance may be provided to them, they still have to be trusted their literal and legal qualification for the position is that they are pre factum trusted. The same goes for the individuals, the trustees that sit at the head of universities, museums, and charitable organizations. Remember trust banks? These were institutions specifically designed to allow trustors, providing the assets, to support beneficiaries via the service of trustees. Boards of directors of our publicly traded companies have broadly similar mandates. They are there because they are trusted to act in the best interest of the shareholders, however that is defined or measured. More broadly, almost all financial advisors, portfolio managers, and financial intermediaries are legally considered to be fiduciaries, that is to have fiduciary responsibility. It's not quite the same as being a trustee, but it's close enough in practical terms. For instance, I function as a, tr a fiduciary in my day job, and I'm surrounded by people with the same mandate, whether it is official or just assumed. But despite so many market participants acting as fiduciaries, the term and the obligations can be vague. The responsibilities of fiduciaries include a duty of loyalty, prudence, and impartiality to put the best interests of the client first. Fine. But these are subjective assertions. They are words. There is substantial case law to frame these words. That's a good thing. And there are specific definitions in various jurisdictions and contexts. And being a fiduciary is clearly a higher standard than the typical broker-dealer framework of finding, quote, suitable, end quote, investments for clients. But at the end of the day, these terms are not airtight, and they do come down to human judgment. In short, being a fiduciary means other, people's, other people are supposed to be able to trust you to act in their best interest. For my particular part of the value chain, being a portfolio manager for a large complex of separately managed accounts, institutional accounts, and mutual funds, my credentials also imply ability to trust me. I have the CFA charter. It's hard to get, and the certificate hangs on my office wall, or at least it did before COVID sent us all home. Financial advisors have separate but similar certificates on their walls suggesting both competence and an ability to trust them. But I have my doubts about the certificates. Competence is one thing. Certifications can attest to that. But trust is another. How do you really credential ethics? It might be better to ask your financial advisor whether they went to Sunday school and were they paying attention rather than look at their credentials. More broadly, how does one operate in a complex society where trust is unavoidable, but where it's also very difficult? There is no perfect solution. Academic finance provides ample evidence of that and also of the danger of the false precision offered by the quants. I lean in the direction of Michael Jensen, another academic, I grant you, but one I would argue is more in line with the messy world as it is, not the clean world inside of a computer or a rational actor. Jensen's theory of agency comes close to addressing how to manage trust in an elongated value chain. True, his answer is as much a system of managed trust or even distrust, but it still succeeds in threading the needle between small trust-based economies and modern complex systems in which you cannot possibly know for certain the exact behavior of all the parties involved in the value chain. 
In those long chains, we consciously occur an agency cost by using someone else to do something we cannot or wish not to do ourselves. In return for getting scale and efficiency, we give up partial or complete control and a small cash expense. The trade-off is worth it for as long as we acknowledge what we can control and what we cannot. Something will always be lost in translation as we move along the value chain, but the benefits outweigh the cash costs and the diminished control. By the way, this is also a cartoonish summary of Jensen's theory. When applied to an investment choice, Jensen's framework can be simplified to ask, quote, who controls the cash generated by a business, end quote, the managers or the shareholders? Prior to the modern period, this was not an issue because the owners were the operators and vice versa. Business was small and local. Post the emergence of large-scale enterprise in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, as described uh, very importantly by Burl and Means in their justifiably famous The Modern Corporation and Private Property from 1932, that link was broken. Now we are all minority shareholders trying to hold corporate juggernauts to account. For Jensen, writing in the 1970s and 80s, the way to do that was controlling the cash. In effect, dividend payments from companies with high free cash flow served as a means for shareholders to limit managerial profligacy. Demanding dividends from successful companies is still a way of offsetting the agency cost of having company management run the business instead of you running the business. Put another way, it is a way of managing trust in a complicated investment chain. Yes, I am entrusting this capital to you but we will compromise on its disposition. As many of you know, I cut my teeth as a specialist in Soviet history. During the late uh, Cold War, President Ronald Reagan adopted the Russian phrase, Davaryai, no pravaryai, uh, trust but verify, to describe his relationship with the Soviet Union. It's not that bad of a way to view the investment equation. Trust, we provide the capital, but verify by holding management accountable through a dividend. By the way, this agency approach to cash flows also explains one of the great mysteries of academic finance, why companies pay dividends and investors seek them out. Sadly, thousands of trees have died in an effort by academic finance to make dividends go away. That effort is covered in my upcoming book, The Ownership Dividend. Despite the siege by the academics, dividends persist, and one good reason is uh, that they offer shareholders an effective method to manage the agency costs of minority stock ownership. Yes, I am well aware, as you are, that l numerous, large, successful, cash-generating companies that do not pay dividends are a direct refutation of this approach to investing. And clearly, those stocks have led the market for the past few decades. Those investors would appear to trust, almost blindly, management of those companies. That's the explicit argument of Berkshire Hathaway. Investors do not want dividends because they fully, totally, completely, utterly trust management with the money. Management feels the same way. So the cash is spent by senior executives without shareholders looking over their shoulders. There may be nothing wrong with that, but investors should appreciate that in this model, the investor serves at the pleasure of the CEO, not the other way around. That is not to my taste, but I admit that it is a very popular business model in today's market. Still, I consider this blind trust approach to dividendless companies to be the exception that proves the Jensen rule. While it has worked for Berkshire Hathaway for decades and for the tech giants for the past two decades, we shall see if the no-strings-attached minority ownership is here to stay. I will let you know in 20 years. While I view dividend payment obligations as a reasonable means of managing the complexity of trust for large publicly traded corporations, what about other systems of managed trust? Contemporary investors will shout blockchain and crypto from morning till night. 
Blockchain is a system of decentralized trust. It's designed so that you can trust the outcome, but no one in between, just you and a network of computers. That's the claim. Over time, we shall see if that is the reality. And cryptocurrency is a system of explicit distrust to existing currencies, nothing more, nothing less. But even here, people have to have a non-provable faith that Bitcoin or Ethereum or some other currency is going to work out. They trust Bitcoin. Investors who do not want to admit to any trust may claim just to be hedging their bets or speculating. But if that is the case, it undermines the argument that cryptocurrencies can be trusted to serve as a full-bodied alternative to existing fiat money. No, there is no way around it. Trust is the secret sauce for decision-making, not some algorithm, not some warehouse of computers in a cold climate mining a cryptocurrency. People listening to this narrative will be quick to point out how often trust can fail. Does the name Bernie Madoff ring a bell? He was trusted and managed to keep all the details of his operations beyond the prying gaze of all the investment intermediaries with fiduciary responsibility. Had he used any of them, his game would have been up much sooner. Of course, trust can be misplaced as easily as a perfectly backtested investment algorithm can be wrong and lose investor money. My point is different. It is that the human element of trust cannot be ignored, evaded, zeroed out, or reduced to a utility function, no matter how hard academic finance tries to. At the end of the day, a degree of uncertainty remains, and human judgment based on a subjective notion of trust becomes unavoidable. We should acknowledge and bring it more to the fore. I'm reminded of the words of Judge Samuel Putnam in his famous Harvard, Harvard College versus Amory case that defined the prudent man rule, the first formal effort in U.S. finance to take on the wild world of decision-making under conditions of uncertainty. While the prudent man rule itself is well-known, it's worth restating Putnam's observation a few lines prior to his more famous formulation about the function of a trustee. He wrote, quote, do what you will, the capital is at hazard, end quote. Do not delude yourself into believing modern finance's precise, probability-weighted expected total return. The capital is at hazard, deal with it. Let me end with the great Peter Bernstein, a financial journalist who chronicled, heralded, and championed the emergence of modern finance and quantitative investing. Even Bernstein, who welcomed the quants with open arms, acknowledged that uncertainty wasn't going any, anywhere. Indeed, he considered it a great gift. He derided a fully mathematized world with only probabilities and no meaningful individual choices. He wrote, quote, what a bore. In that system, innovation and change are impossible, creative destruction unknown, risk-taking nothing more than a numbers game. Thank goodness the world of pure probability exists only on paper and has little to do with breathing, sweating, anxious, and creative human beings struggling to find their way out of the darkness. No, we are free souls. Our decisions do matter. We can change the world. Whether that turns out to be for the worse or the better is up to us. The rules that determine the next throw of the dice have nothing to do with it. End quote. The great words of Peter Bernstein. Note, he is talking about uncertainty, but of course you follow the logic that when faced with uncertainty that can't be quantified away, your judgment becomes one primarily of making a trust-based decision. Unless you are prepared to just say that you're just going through life guessing, which seems improbable, living in a world of uncertainty requires trust to navigate it. Which leads uh, to my only bit of practical advice. I'm frequently asked, often in stage whispers, what I recommend people do with their money. Get into the market, get out of the market, buy this, buy that. Academic finance would tell you that the goal of the exercise is to seek maximum risk-adjusted total return and that your entire investment process should be built around that goal, adjusted for your tolerance for risk as defined poorly by the industry. At the risk of having my CFA charter rescinded, 
I beg to differ. My answer is simple. Choose a financial advisor you trust and move on with the rest of your life. Maybe you will get great returns, maybe mediocre returns. You can measure them periodically, not every day, not every month, but every year or so, and make a change if you think it wise. That is another act of decision-making under conditions of uncertainty. But if you trust your advisor to act in your best interest, to make a good faith effort to achieve your financial goals, you will sleep better at night. And understand that he or she is doing the same thing, making trust decisions every day on your behalf. That's it. I trust you found this episode provocative, and I also trust that you probably don't agree. If so, please chime in. I look forward to the back and forth. Uh, I can be reached on Twitter at, uh, at History Investor, via LinkedIn, or at my website, strategicdividendinvestor.com. Thank you very much.